We are uh, going through a, a joint sermon series, myself and also Pastor Tanner, uh, and it's entitled Portraits of Jesus. And so we've been looking at just some, some beloved passages out of uh, the gospel narratives from the life of Christ, um, just looking at, again, different events, uh, different snapshots from the life and the ministry of Jesus. And really our aim in this series is to, that, that all of us together would hopefully see Jesus' identity, his character, his heart, uh, as it's displayed in his teaching, in his parables, in his miracles, in his interactions with people. And this morning, as we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, uh, really this is in line, I believe, with what Luke's aim is as the writer of this particular Gospel. The question that Luke uh, wants to answer for us is, who is this Jesus? What did he do and say? What did he teach? How did he live? And then as, as Luke uh, goes into a detailed account, not only of Jesus' life, but his death, and then the events that took place afterwards, it really becomes clear that this Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the Savior who had been promised throughout the Old Testament. But even if a person were to read through Luke's gospel from beginning to end, and even if, if one were to come to an accurate understanding of, of who Jesus is, that he is the Savior of the world, he is the Son of God, that would not be sufficient in itself. Because there's another question, it's just as important, and it's, it's this question. This gospel, this, this good news about Jesus, who he is, what he did, Who's it, who's it for? Do you, have to, do you have to measure up to a certain standard? Do you have to come from a certain background, have a certain pedigree, uh, have to be of, of a particular ethnicity? And not only who is it for, how does one respond to this Jesus and to his, his message of good news? And so today we're going to be looking at a story from early in Jesus' ministry it's in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You can find it on page 860 of one of those blue uh, pew Bibles uh, in the seat in front of you. But as we look at this passage, Jesus is going to be really the most important character. He is uh, at the heart of this story. He's at the heart of what the Gospel of Luke is all about. But the other central figure that I think we should pay really close attention to is Simon Peter one of these first disciples that Jesus is going to call. Because I believe Luke presents him as, as an example, a model for us to follow. Uh, Peter, in a sense, is, is this prototypical disciple, kind of showing us the way, as it were. Uh, he's, he's by no means perfect, far from it, but I believe at every point in the narrative, we're going to see him make the right decision and take the appropriate action. And so, all of us here today uh, in, in 2022 in Rapid City, South Dakota, we can learn from this early disciple. We can emulate his example. So to give just a little bit of brief context within Luke's gospel, so far in, in the narrative that, that Luke has laid out, Jesus has already begun his ministry. Uh, in, in, in chapter 414, it says he, he begun his ministry in the power of the Spirit. 
He's preached in his hometown, Nazareth. He's read, uh, read from the Isaiah scroll, the prophet Isaiah. These words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he announces today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Luke 4.21, He's, he's already been casting out demons, healing multitudes of people, including even Simon Peter's own mother-in-law. And so then in today's passage, he's going to call his first disciples. So let's read from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Listen to God's word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So what I think the, the main thrust, the, the main idea... Uh, that we're going to be drawing out from this, this text and, and seeking to, to understand and to dig into is, is simply this. It's that, that Jesus speaks God's word, he performs God's work, and calls sinners to join God's mission. So follow him. I'll say that again, and this will kind of form the outline for, uh, for us as we go through the passage. But Jesus speaks God's word, He performs God's work, and he calls sinners to join God's mission. So, follow him. So, first of all, we see uh, this this first point. Jesus is speaking God's word in the first uh, verses of of chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Already, prior to this in Luke's gospel, Jesus has really established his authority through the power of his teaching also, the power uh, that he has to, to command, to cast out demons uh, in, in chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. He's announced, as, as we made mention of, he's announced this new dawning era of salvation, as he read from the Isaiah scroll uh, in, in chapter 4, 17 through 21. And so now, here, we see the crowds are pressing in on him to hear the word of God from his mouth. And, and you know... Of course, in one sense, this was very literal. They were, they were literally pressing in, physically pressing in, that, thus the need for him to get into Simon's boat and, and get a little bit of distance uh, away. But I think there's, there's also a picture here of, of the heart attitude 
that we should have in response to Jesus, right? To be pressing in to hear uh, the word of God from, from Jesus Christ. You know, Pastor James was preaching in 1 Samuel uh, last week, talking about this, this famine of the word of the Lord in Israel. And even today, with the word and, and, and the scriptures so, so prevalent, so uh, easily available in print and on, uh, online, but he asked the question, have we stopped listening to that word, even as, as readily and easily available as it is? So an application for us as a church is how can we press in uh, in this way to, to hear the word of God from Jesus? Now, certainly just being here uh, on Sunday morning, uh, that's, you're listening to the preaching of God's word now. That's a great place to start. So, you know, kudos to you. And of course, we all know that, that a key means of grace for the Christian is to, to press in, to hear from God in the pages of the Bible, in our own personal uh, study and time of devotion. And when we read God's Word, when we study and we meditate on it, both the Old and the New Testament, we are going to hear about Jesus and we are going to hear from Jesus. We don't have to limit ourselves to just you know, these four Gospels or to the New Testament because, you know, when the resurrected Jesus was walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus in what was, you know, surely the greatest Bible study uh, ever taught in Luke 24, 27, Luke tells us he began with Moses, right? This would be the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses and all the prophets and interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. So we can, we can hear about Jesus, we can hear from Jesus throughout the pages of scripture. But not only that, for us as Christians, if you're here today and you're not you're not a member of a local church, or even if you are a member, but you aren't really engaged with the community of God's people, if you aren't truly known by others, I wonder if you realize that you are missing out on another key means of grace that God intends to use to speak his word to you. It's another area that we can press in to hear the word of God. Because Colossians 3.16, Paul writes this, this command, this exhortation to the local church body, to the congregation in Colossae. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So brothers and sisters in Christ who, who are committed to us, Christians who have who've covenant covenanted to follow Jesus together with us, these, these fellow Christians, these, these fellow members are meant to, to teach us and admonish us in all wisdom, as God's word richly dwells and resides in them. Now, this doesn't give anyone, you know, permission to be harsh or arrogant or heavy-handed. No, Paul just got through commanding the church to be compassionate and kind, humble, meek, patient, to bear with one another. And yet, our fellow church members are meant to be a means of grace in our lives. But that means we have to spend time together. We, we, we should be in small groups. We should meet up together uh, just to read God's word. We should invite others into our homes so that we can truly know others and be known by them, so that we can weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, and we can offer to others 
the comfort we have received from the Lord and also receive that comfort from others. Now, while all of these crowds are, are pressing in to hear the word of God, you know, for, for Peter, for Simon Peter in this story, the rubber really meets the road when the word that Jesus speaks to Peter comes in the form of a very concrete, specific request. You know, it's one thing to hear inspiring teaching or parables, but what if Jesus comes to you directly and asks you to do something? Now, now the first request Jesus makes of Peter, maybe we could say it's relatively easy enough to, to obey, uh, to submit to. In verse 3, right, it says that, Jesus getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. You know, this is a great opportunity for Peter to, to support Jesus' ministry. It doesn't infringe on, on Peter's domain, his area of expertise. Peter, you know, we all like to be in this position, right? Peter is able to do Jesus a favor because, you know, he has boats. Jesus doesn't. Jesus is getting pressed in by all these crowds. Peter can, can lend a hand and help him out. But, you know, Jesus' second request is, is really a much greater test. Because now the, the religious rabbi, right, the, the, the carpenter's son, he's asking the fisherman to let down his nets at, at a time that Simon clearly knew from all his experience and professional uh, expertise. He knew this to be the wrong time. Uh, night was, was the, the proper time for this kind of fishing. They, they would use these, these trammel nets, which are made of multiple layers of, of linen thread that kind of continually get more and more uh, kind of tight and, and closed in. And so during the day, these, these nets would be very visible. The fish would see them and avoid them. And of course, the reason that, that Peter, James, and John and, and, and their partners are all cleaning their nets now, typically they would do this in the morning, is so they'll be prepared then to go out again in, in the night for fishing. And so if they go out now and they cast their nets again, they're going to have to start this whole entire process of cleaning the nets uh, all over again. So again, as, as Pastor James reminded us last week, hearing God's voice Hearing God's word is going to create a tension for you. And right now it's creating a tension for Peter. So Christian, what might Jesus be asking of you that challenges and stretches you? Is there some, some place where his spirit has been nudging you lately? You know, maybe it's, it's been about initiating some kind of a spiritual conversation, trying to step out and share the gospel. Maybe it's been trying to branch out in some new, new ministry, some new endeavor for the kingdom. Maybe it has to do with an area of your life where, like Peter, you really consider yourself to be the expert. It, it, maybe it's a context where you have a lot of experience. You know, that could be the school that you're attending. It could be the, the, whole, the whole military world or the world of, of government and politics. It could be just your own family and the dynamics there. Because, see, you understand the ins and outs. 
You understand the pecking order. You understand all the unspoken rules. You know, maybe it's just simply your confidence in being an expert on yourself, right? You, you know your personality, your strengths and weaknesses, your gifting, your abilities. And here's Jesus coming along with a request that, that really doesn't seem to take account, into account all of your experience, all of your valuable knowledge. He's not really seeking your input on this. But, you know, Peter, again, he gives us an example that we can follow. His response is the proper response. Even though he doesn't understand, even though he knows that he and his partners have, have put all of their expert knowledge into, uh, at work all night long and yet had no success, but his words to Jesus are, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word... I will let down the nets. Without knowing why Jesus would suggest this, why he would come and make this demand, he still obeyed. So Peter calls Jesus master, but then he also backs up those words by his actions. See, Jesus is not merely a preacher or a healer. He's not just a master in in a religious sense. No, he is master of all things, of every domain, every area of life. And so Peter surrenders control of his boat and his nets to Jesus, the very tools of his trade, his means of livelihood. He makes the choice to submit to the word of Jesus. And so what do we see um, as a result? In verses 6 through 8, Jesus performs God's work. Let's read again, picking up in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So if, if hearing the word of Jesus you know, created this initial tension for Simon Peter as he had to struggle with whether or not he was going to obey. Now, in the, in the face of this miraculous catch that's, that's completely astounded and confounded the fishermen, now the tension just ratchets up a whole other level. Peter enters into an even greater crisis because in the face of this miracle, the power and presence of God is clearly in Jesus and with Jesus. You know, Peter initially obeyed Jesus' word and called him master, but now, having seen this miracle, this work of God, this, this catch of fish that, that just flies in, in the face of all of his years of experience, now he calls Jesus Lord. Now, I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves in terms of, of where we are and the story where we are in, in uh, Luke's gospel, Peter, at this point, does not yet fully recognize Jesus' divine identity, his, his equality with God as the eternal Son of God. And we can see this just by considering, you know, all the way over in, in chapter 8, uh, 825 in Luke's gospel, the, the disciples are still questioning, who is this 
after Jesus calms the storm. And then in Luke 9, 20, uh, finally, you know, four chapters from now, Peter's going to confess Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then even later in, 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 in Luke 9, 29, there's going to be the transfiguration. Jesus is going to be transfigured. And these, these same three disciples here from chapter 5, Peter, James, and John, they're going to see his divine glory and hear the Father call Jesus his son. And so then decades later, Peter's going to be able to write the letter of 2 Peter, and in the opening, he's going to give Jesus the title, Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on to write in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, referring to the transfiguration that they beheld. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And, and certainly, you know, by the end of Luke's gospel, uh, the disciples have a, a much fuller understanding of who Jesus is after the resurrection. In Luke 24, 52, it says they worshipped him. But at this early stage, Peter doesn't, doesn't have a full recognition, a full understanding of who Jesus is, even though he sees clearly that God is with him and God is working through him. But Luke wants us, as his readers, to, to view this event, this story, this miraculous catch and Jesus' response and Peter's response to it. He wants us to view this in parallel to other appearances of God throughout redemptive history, other theophanies. And so the manner in which Peter responds is, is the same way that God's people ought to respond when they're brought face to face with God's holiness and majesty. So for instance, in the book of Job, at the end of that book, Job says uh, to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the prophet Isaiah, in that famous passage in Isaiah 6 it tells us, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to, the, to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So I believe that, that Job and, and Isaiah here and Simon Peter, all of them are examples of, for us of, of the right, the proper reaction to a true encounter with God. I don't think we should take for granted that this is the universal reaction, the automatic kind of knee-jerk reaction that every person is going to have, but this is the right response. 
that we would recognize the, the vast gulf between this holy God and our own sinful, wandering, idolatrous hearts, that we would not come, come brazenly with, with requests and demands looking for, for God to do our bidding like the crowds do in, in Luke chapter 4 where they're, they're amazed at Jesus' miracles and so they're seeking him out and they're trying to prevent him from leaving when he's going to move on to other towns to preach the gospel. But that we would also not question or oppose Jesus the way that the Pharisees and the scribes did, you know, posturing as if they were really his superiors and seeking to find fault with him because they were jealous and they were threatened by his authority. See, see the Pharisees actually were perceptive. Their, their understanding was correct. If Jesus had all authority to forgive sins, to, to, to upend all of their cherished human traditions, that meant they didn't get to hold on to their authority, but they had to defer to this teacher, this master, this king. They were going to have to humble themselves and say, like John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. So we should not be like the, the self-seeking crowds or the arrogant Pharisees, but in light of the power of God, the glory of God, the work of God displayed in Jesus Christ, we should be like Peter and say, oh Lord, you should depart from me. I'm, I'm a sinful creature. I'm unworthy of your presence. But you see, this is the, the wonderful good news of the gospel. Though, like Job, we can say, I despise myself. Like Isaiah, we can cry, woe is me. Though, like Peter, we can say, depart from me, O Lord. Yet, Jesus calls sinners to join in God's mission. And that's what we see in, in verse 9 and 10 here. Luke goes on, for, for he, referring to, to Simon Peter, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus speaks words of comfort, words of mercy and grace. He says, do not be afraid. He says that because Peter is afraid. And Jesus reassures him. He encourages him to stop. Stop being fearful. Now, it's certainly true that Peter is a sinful man. Jesus nonetheless calls him to be his follower, to join him in his gospel mission. You know, and there's, there's a reason that Jesus is able here to, to quiet Peter's fear, to extend this gracious offer. It's not, Peter's sinfulness is not somehow unimportant or inconsequential. No, nothing could be further from the truth. Human sin is our greatest problem. No, Jesus can extend grace and forgiveness because he expressly came to lay down his life, to deal with our sins once and for all. See, what's not explicitly referenced in this passage becomes crystal clear in just a few verses. Later on in chapter 5, in verses 18 through 26, Jesus responds to the faith of a paralyzed man and his friends, and then he speaks these words, man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And then he goes on to heal the man just to prove to these skeptical Pharisees that he indeed has authority on earth to forgive sins. By the time we get to verse 30 in this same chapter, Jesus is maligned for, for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the Savior with authority to forgive sins. You know, that same theme of, of forgiveness and of atonement is, is likewise pictured in Isaiah 6 that we were reading earlier, this kind of parallel passage to Luke 5. After Isaiah's confession, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In verse 6 of Isaiah 6, it goes on to say, then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Because of this, this, this sacrificial offering at the altar, Isaiah's sin is atoned for. And because of the sacrifice Jesus came to make, Peter's sin would be atoned for. See, Jesus came not only to preach, not only to call disciples, but as the Lamb of God, Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice that all the other sacrifices in the temple, including this, this sacrifice at the altar in Isaiah 6, all of them had pointed toward his sacrifice. Hebrews 9.26, it says, But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus came because of our sin, the brokenness, rebellion, and self-centeredness in, in our own hearts. Each and every one of us has fallen short and are deserving of, of physical and spiritual death and separation from God forever. But God, in love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die the death, to bear the judgment that we deserved. And so now, whoever would turn from their sin and who would trust in Jesus Christ is forgiven and brought back into fellowship with God. And we know this because three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, exalting him, putting him at his right hand, and one day he'll return to bring justice and to make all things right, to bring his, his saints, his church, into his heavenly kingdom, to live with him, to dwell with him uh, in perfect communion forever. Now, if you've never heard this gospel message before, or if, if you've just never fully embraced it and put your trust in Jesus, I would urge you to do that today, this very morning. And please, please come talk to me afterwards or talk to, to any of the pastors, the elders, or maybe if there's someone who brought you along here to church this morning, any of us would love to be able to talk with you more and, and to to meet with you, maybe to, to read uh, through one of the Gospels together, but just to look at what does it look like to follow Jesus. Jesus offers this, this amazing, this incredible grace, and he invites Peter to join him. He says, from now on, you'll be catching men, catching people. So in, in Peter's old fishing job, his career, you know, fish were captured and killed in order to be sold. But Jesus uses a play on words here. And from now on, Peter will be 
catching alive, catching not fish, but people, catching people for the sake of life. It's a very different thing. You know, I think sometimes when it comes to just our own personal efforts in evangelism and trying to speak about Jesus to others, we can fall into the trap of, of, of feeling kind of sheepish or awkward or ashamed as if, you know, catching people was, was really kind of a, a negative thing, like, like catching fish, where it's, it's something that's unwelcome and it's unpleasant for the fish. But I think we need to lean further into the radical difference with this kind of fishing that Jesus is calling his disciples to do. It's a catching people for life. It's a snatching out of the jaws of death. It's an announcement of a gracious offer of of pardon and forgiveness, freedom, rescue. It's good news. And so when, when Jesus makes this little play on words, this pun, as it were, he's not equating two kinds of fishing. He's not equating two kinds of catching He's describing a radical transformation in the nature of the catching. It is a catching that is a rescuing from death. It's it's in order to spare life, in order to save life, in order to see people set free through the gospel. And here's the amazing thing. It's not up to, to Peter's power or any one of us, our own power or strength or wisdom or eloquence, Just as Peter, through Jesus' power, has experienced this miraculous catch of fish, the nets are breaking, the boats are sinking, well, you know what? One day, as Luke is going to record in Acts chapter 2, Peter is going to boldly cast out his nets. He's going to preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit to a crowd in Jerusalem, and over 3,000 souls will be added to the church rescued from death and eternal judgment into life and salvation. You know, at at this point, Peter has no concept what Jesus is signing signing him up for. But this abundant catch of fish in Luke 5 is a foretaste. It's a picture of the incredible success, the unstoppable success of Jesus' mission. This mission that he's calling Peter, James, and John to join in. This mission that's going to succeed because Jesus will give his disciples what they need to accomplish it. And he's going to promise to be with them every step of the way. As he says in in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, another beautiful aspect to this. Not only is, is Peter, he's called into this partnership with Jesus to come follow after him and, and into this, this reconciliation, this kind of vertical reconciliation with God, but also his human relationships, this, this horizontal aspect also is going to be transformed. So, Back in verse 7, when James and John are described as as Peter's partners, kind of Luke uses this technical term, meaning like a business partner. But down here in verse 10, where where Simon Peter and James and John, it talks about they're all astonished at the catch. 
James and John are again called partners with Simon, but now the word is, in the Greek, is koinonoi, meaning sharers, sharers with Simon. And, and some of you, if you've, if you've grown up in the church long enough, you might have heard th- this Greek word koinonia before, koinonia for fellowship. It has the same root. These two words have the same root. It's this Greek word for fellowship or communion. And so it, it seems... It seems that Luke makes this little subtle change in the vocabulary to demonstrate that the partnership of these three men now is going to be so much deeper, so much more meaningful as they partner and share together in gospel work at Jesus' side. Just think of, of you know, Peter, James, and John going to the temple and, and then the, the, the crippled man who's, who's healed. Their, their partnership, their ministry together in the gospel so much deeper uh, than, than simply their, their being business partners uh, in fishing before Jesus came. So in light of all these things, Jesus' Jesus' word, his, his miraculous work, his, his call, his invitation to join in the mission, what's the conclusion of all these things? It's, it's simply follow him, follow Jesus Christ. Just as we see in verse 11, And when they'd brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The proper response to encountering Jesus comes here to its its full and final fulfillment. We've we've observed many steps this morning in in, in responding rightly to Jesus, uh, to who he is. We need to, to recognize that his word has absolute authority, that he not only works wonders by the power of God, but he is the Son of God who is, is one with God the Father. We must recognize that, that we're sinful and wretched in light of his holiness and perfection. We need to hear his voice that calms all of our fears and invites us to, to be by his side. We need to understand that he is the Lamb of God who dies in order to grant us forgiveness. But then finally, we should leave everything to follow him. You know, Isaiah did this after his sin was atoned for. In verse 8, Isaiah chapter 6, it concludes with Isaiah saying, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. You know, Peter, James, and John, they got back to the shore. They left behind their boats, their nets, this was, this was their livelihood. This was their entire way of life. It was their community in order to follow Jesus. Now, will you have to, to leave behind your career, your home? Will you have to forsake loved ones? Maybe. You know, at times, that may be what is required to follow Jesus. And for some, like with Peter and James and John, it may come at the very beginning of your journey in following Jesus. For others, there may be losses, farewells, forsaking things that come further down the road. But the essential thing is that nothing is too cherished, too dear to us, that we cannot give it up for Christ's sake. If Jesus calls you to leave behind a high-paying job in order to pursue ministry, or if he calls you to leave behind family and loved ones in order to, to serve as a pastor, as, as Pastor James 
uh, and his family did most recently here. If Jesus calls you to, to give your son or daughter up to his calling to serve across the globe in, in missions work, if Jesus calls you to, to give up a sinful habit or, or a distraction that's just hindering you from, from fruitfulness, he is worth leaving everything behind because of who he is, because of what he has done for us. He died for us. Because of his heart that he loves us, he is for us, and nothing can separate us from his love. Whatever to others might seem like just such an incredible sacrifice, in reality, if we have Christ, if we can say just like the words of the song we we sang a few moments ago, I lay down all lesser things for greater gain. If we have Christ, we have infinitely more than anything that we might give up. So we should follow him, follow Jesus Christ. It will always be worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for th- this story of how you called uh, these men, Peter, James, and John, uh, to be your disciples. And we just marvel at how you have been doing so, and you have been using them and, and so many countless other disciples since then to continue to call people to follow Jesus. And we are here as a, as a result of that gospel work, that great commission work. Uh, we just thank you for, uh, for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lamb of God, and through him we can be reconciled to you. We pray you would help us as we, as we think on these things, as we meditate on these things, as we respond even now in song, that we that we would continue to press into what it means to hear from you, to obey you, to follow you, most of all to put all of our trust, all the weight of our hope and all of our faith in Jesus Christ and all that he is for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.